Hello. Hello. Welcome to Design Wake Up, the place where twice a month design, innovation and management, they meet. We are your hosts, Sam and Simon. Yes, another week without Marco. He's on another business trip, jet setting around the world the way that Marco does. Um, So we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about a subject that is kind of old news now. It is a bit old news, but... You know, it's a take on a few months later, so... It relates to design in a way that I don't think many of the conversations that we've had about this subject have addressed so far. So the subject at hand, late 2021, YouTube decided to remove the dislike count from videos. And at the time, there was a lot of uproar, the likes of PewDiePie and Marcus Brownlee, big YouTubers who are usually quite complimentary, well, sometimes quite complimentary about YouTube. Um, They came out and publicly said that they disagreed with YouTube doing this. So, you know, they say when you really love something, you don't go easy on it. You actually critique it more. So that's why I wanted to talk about this new thing that's come up, which is removing public dislikes. So there was a YouTube blog post yesterday explaining that they will be slowly hiding the dislike counter. So the dislike count information will still be available to the uploader in the back end, but that dislike count will now be hidden for all viewers of all videos. And I don't think that's a good move. I think there are more downsides than upsides to this. So the reason for this that they're citing the most and I'll just take their word for it, is that first of all, public dislike counters can impact creators' well-being, and it can also enable targeted dislike campaigns on certain videos. I think just blanket removing the dislike count from all videos on YouTube does more harm to the user experience than problems it solves. At first, I was like, uh, who cares? I don't. But then I thought about it, and yeah, I care. I care now. I get that they're not removing the button. Apparently the button's still gonna be there. But it's not gonna do anything. <laughs> you won't see the dislikes on the video. YouTube is saying that we are making the dislike count private to protect our creators by reducing targeted dislikes attacks on their channel. So that's one of the main reasons that they're removing it. But I never seen that. Have you seen that? What are they referencing exactly? So yeah, YouTube clearly already knows everything that's already been said. So there's, and they already decided they're going to move on with it. So there's really no point even complaining about it. I don't even know why I'm talking about this. I think the main things that um, both PewDiePie and Marcus highlighted in their videos is that they, the reasons that YouTube gave for them weren't, they didn't really think that that was the real deal. And they, they're just, both of them, and actually not only them, because I went in and, and had a look at the comments, and I don't think I saw one person that said, oh, this is a great idea, this is going to be better. Basically, you look at the dislike and the, and the like buttons as your recommendations for whether you should watch a video or not. Um, so if you can see that, you know, a video's had this many likes, but you can't see how many dislikes, you, are, you know, you can't make an informed decision about whether this is a video that you should be watching or not. And I think those are the main points that they kind of covered in their in their videos. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, YouTube were potentially using some of those points as a reason to remove the dislikes, such as, well, is is the amount of dislikes an accurate representation of whether or not the content is good? Those dislikes could have been created by um, an organized campaign to give somebody a load of dislikes because of bullying or whatever reason. I think even that 
doesn't take into consideration the nuance of the situation. So you've got things like Rebecca Black singing Friday or the YouTube Rewind videos that got loads of dislikes. And even though an argument could be made that that means that you shouldn't watch them, that was ultimately why people did watch them, because they were widely hated. I think it just adds another metric to a video that gives you some context around the content and whether or not it's going to have interest to you. Whether you like it or not, it, it could still be interesting. And I think that harassment is actually mainly in the comments. If a video has a lot of dislikes or likes, that's just, you know, clicking buttons. But actually the, getting rid of the dislike button or getting rid of the, the dislike count next to the button just means that people now use the comment section more, where actually most of the bullying happened before anyway. What it's created is that kind of opportunity for more people to go in and, and actually make their thoughts known through comments. Yeah, that's a good point. So we're not going to rehash the whole argument of whether or not removing the dislike button or the dislike count is a good idea or not. That's already been done by many podcasts and YouTubes. YouTubers. Um, <laughs> we thought it might be interesting to look at it from the perspective of a designer and taken into consideration last week's episode on design thinking where we talked about building a product around a user's needs. This seems to be flying in the face of that. The users are not happy about that. But do you always have to have the user at the center of your product or could there be legitimate business reasons behind giving a user a bad experience? What do you think, Sam? Well, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, a few months have passed, you know, we're talking about this happening in 2021 um, and uh, people have found ways around this. So before the episode, I decided to talk to my son, who's a teenager. So you can imagine that he, you know, YouTube is his life and he's basically on it 24 seven. And I also asked him to talk to a few friends of his to just to get a little bit of a, an understanding, um, you know, of what it's like and what the experience is like now. And, and they've actually found a way around it. So um, there's an extension he uses the one on Chrome, it basically um, has taken the history of the dislikes from before 2021 and then also adds all of the dislikes of people that have downloaded the extension, which means that these, you know, him and all of his friends for the last year have been seeing the dislike count. It's not thorough because it doesn't show the dislikes that people without the extension do, but still it's a kind of way around. And, and I think that's a, a brilliant example of how you know, UX designers designing the ideal user journey and, you know, designing these new features or taking rid or getting rid of them or whatever. All it adds is that kind of sludge for people, but people will always find, uh, you know, users will always find a way around it. Um, and they'll, they'll, they'll either find a way around it or they'll go to a different platform, one that suits their needs. And it's just interesting because initially, before I started, um, you know, talking to my son, I thought... You know, I'm sure he's just gotten used to it and he doesn't really care anymore. Well, actually, he proactively went and found a way to jump around that hoop. Even if we do an, an ideal user experience, but then the business needs come in and start, let's say, asking, you know, UXs to change stuff, the users are still going to fight for their rights in that sense. So I think it's just interesting to see how a few months on, how people have worked around it. That's really interesting. And it, it kind of highlights 
to me that YouTube are in this very luxurious position where they can afford to cause a huge amount of friction in a user journey to the point where a user would actually go away and create additional code to supplement their experience using the platform and continue to use that platform. A lot of other platforms, that could have been the death of them if they created a bad user experience that took away one of the key drivers in a user's enjoyment of a product. They may not be around to tell the, the story a year later. Do you think there's a way of measuring whether or not you have the luxury of doing something like that? Or do you think you need to, when you're designing something, have those metrics in mind, have the, an idea of what constitutes overstepping the mark? I mean, I think it all boils down to, you know, you can have your business metrics and your ROIs and everything, but you're looking into the future and not really knowing what the outcome is going to be. So I think if you're designing with those sorts of things in mind and not the user needs and not testing it with users, then it is going to fail and users are either going to leave or, or find a way around it. And initially, if I understand correctly, this was supposed to be a trial to see how it works. And with all the backlash, you could maybe even say that you know the test failed or it didn't fail but it just showed that their thinking wasn't wasn't right and so you know why didn't they revert back or or change it if i remember correctly youtube when youtube started they had that five star rating i think where you could write, mm-hmm. rate from one to five and then they changed it to like and dislike don't remember, you know, how that went. But now, you know, getting rid of that, it's like they're, they're cutting out more and more and just leaving, you know, all of the nice fluffy good news stories and the, the, good, the likes and, the, and everything that's good about it instead of showing, you know, being transparent. I mean, can you imagine Amazon getting rid of their one to four star ratings and only leaving the five star ratings? That'd be uproar. But at the same time, I kind of wonder if... You say that the experiment potentially failed, but you've got to kind of wonder if it did or not. I mean, YouTube is a huge organization and they've got a massive research team and we could potentially be in an echo chamber type situation where the people that are complaining about it are the vocal ones. And there's an underlying group of people that actually really, they're enjoying this change, but they're not speaking up for fear of being shouted down. That could be one scenario. Absolutely. The other one could be that there just isn't a solid competitor for YouTube. Because, you know, like it or not, YouTube is a search engine for finding videos, you know, DIY videos, um, music videos, and, you know, and YouTuber videos. So you don't have, you know, you've got a lot of other social media platforms, but none of them are a real competitor for YouTube. So is it that users are okay or they just adapt or they're like you know what so what it doesn't matter or is it just a case that a competitor hasn't yet come onto the market and when it does then that's the end of youtube that's really interesting i don't think it would be the end of youtube just like that but there's definitely a potential scenario whereby youtube have done a cost-benefit analysis on removing the dislike count and at this moment in time it's profitable for them maybe 
I don't know, a big music label that spends a lot of money with them is they don't like the idea of people disliking the work that they're putting out there. Um, so pressure from them may have had an effect on the executive leadership team at YouTube. And YouTube have run experiments and it just, it's fine, it's working. We haven't lost all of our customers because there isn't that competitor and our biggest customer is happy. So everything's fine apart from a few insignificant customers that are complaining about a lack of user experience. But that opens up the doorway for a competitor to come in and potentially offer an incrementally better service by adding the dislike count and block towards from YouTube because they're becoming disheartened. Absolutely. And I think um, the thing with YouTube, as with the likes of Facebook, is that there's a, um, a big old, well, let's say an older community there. So um, before the session, after talking to my son, who's a teenager, I spoke to my husband and I asked him if he had noticed that the dislike count was gone. And he said, no, had no idea. And, and so I think you know, with YouTube, I think there is that community that just doesn't care, that adapts, that is like, I've, I never I never like or dislike, so it doesn't matter, or I don't even look at that count because I go in for very specific videos that I know I want to watch. But then you've got that, that those teenagers, you know, that, that are, are using YouTube and they have certain things that they want and they are the ones that very often flock to new things and try new things out. Like every time there's a new platform, social media platform that pops up, my son downloads it. I usually download it so that I can trial it with him. And then we see whether it sticks or not. So we had that situation with Snapchat a few years ago where we started to get very bored of, of Facebook. And, you know, because of the, the community, there was only your friends and the photos were there forever. You know, having Snapchat where your photos disappeared and you could just have fun was really engaging and kind of, you know, and it was just um, one of those things that we really wanted to trial. And we still have it on our on our phones and, and use it. So I think there's this kind of, you know, with, with platforms, there's a trial and error point where people that are more tech savvy and more interested in technology will download to trial it. And, you know, of course, YouTube is the biggest one out there. I don't know if there's any competitors out there. Maybe there are that we haven't heard of. But if one does come out, you know, there is a possibility that people will just move to YouTube, even even for the fact that it's something newer. And if it if you know, if it does work better and it doesn't have the friction and the sludge that they've that they're encountering now with with the adverts you know i had one uh, nine minute video today where i had three adverts during it um and then you know and and getting rid of the dislike count it might be that people move or it might be that they don't which is another interesting avenue to to explore so you could wonder if YouTube are trying to take the platform down the similar sort of route as um, Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat, where there isn't that aspect of disliking things. And it feels to me that those platforms, kind of, in addition to showing you the content that you want to see from your followed creators or your friends, they suggest content to you. It's difficult to know whether or not the power of having a recommendation engine versus a search engine, which is kind of what YouTube is, is overwhelmingly driving what YouTube are trying to do here. I've changed the way that I've started looking at Instagram recently. Um, 
previously it would just be a place where I'd look at photos or upload photos of my friends. Then a couple of months ago, I kind of ignored them, but the Reels functionality where you get short videos, a bit like TikTok, started popping up. And I kind of... I was loath to watch them because I knew what they were doing. I know they were trying to grab my attention. And it was a bit like the clickbait stuff you see on the internet. You kind of hate it, but if there's a really good clickbait title, I'll still click on it because I'm dirty like that. <laughs> Instagram was showing me these videos that were kind of related to things that I was interested in. And I noticed that they were getting better and better. And I'd feel really bad with myself actually watching them. I'd watch one every couple of days until... Like finally, I found myself watching like 20 in a row and I'd realised that they'd learned the type of content that keeps me coming back. It was kind of like <laughs> they, they found the catnip for me and I just I found it fascinating that they could suggest videos that I would continue to watch like some sort of zombie. The power of a platform having that sort of hold over your attention could be what YouTube are trying to go for here. Um, I think it was the comment by Marcus that um, if you if you go onto YouTube, you know, prior to, to them getting rid of the dislike count, if you went onto YouTube and saw that a video had like, I don't know, 534 likes but 634 dislikes, they were kind of very, you know, they were similar numbers, so you still could make a, a decision on whether you actually wanted to watch it or not. But then if there was a very big, you know, difference, uh, and let's say there were more dislikes, then you kind of straight away knew, okay, that's not a video for me, I don't want to watch it. Whereas now, because you don't have the dislike count, you can see, so for instance, the uh, YouTube remove the dislike button by PewDiePie video right now has 536 thousand likes and I don't know how many dislikes it has but I'm thinking oh my god 536 thousand likes that is so much you know I'm going to watch this video but it could be that actually the dislike is even bigger it might be that this you know it it this this is a way to get more people to watch more videos because if they don't have that um, rating that recommendation up front they're going to go in and watch the video anyway so maybe more people are watching more videos thanks to this Definitely. That's another interesting thing that you could wonder about, like how much revenue does an additional 20 seconds of a video that somebody would ordinarily have left because of the dislikes, how much does that additional 20 seconds make YouTube in revenue? Exactly. But going a little bit back to your uh, your Instagram um, comment, it's, it's funny with the Reels thing because I know that my son has um, kind of gotten hooked on reels now. And again, they, as you said, they know exactly what he likes to likes to watch. So he goes in and, you know, he just sits there scrolling through them. And we've got this um, family um, chat where he just posts them. And sometimes, you know, if I'm not up to date and I don't look throughout the day on what he's sending, it might be that in the evening I've got 30 reels to look through because he's just constantly, every time he's sitting down and not doing anything, watching those reels where I've never really gotten into them. Like I'll watch what he sends me and then I'll go on to my Instagram feed, but I don't really go proactively into reels. For me, um, the th the worst thing is when I go in and try and look for someone like, you know, into that search bar, when you go into the search bar beneath it, you get all of these photos and they start showing photos. And again, this is probably because they know me 
even better than my husband knows me. They start showing photos of like actors and actresses and bloggers and whatever that I'm interested in. So, you know, I go in to look for something specific and then I'm there 15 minutes later and I'm like, well, why? Well, wait a minute. Why am I looking at these photos? What was I? Why, why was I here? I completely forget what I was looking for. And I've just spent 15 minutes looking through posts about, I don't know, Kirsten Dunst or whatever, which I wasn't even <laughs> supposed to be doing. So um, it's very interesting how they've gotten those different ways to get uh, to get into people's minds and, and into their free time. It makes the cynical side of me think, well, if YouTube are trying to get the same level of addictedness that the, the reels and the TikToks are having on their users, what do they want to do with that? When they're going from a position of being the biggest video platform on the internet that people interact with and create content for on a massive scale to a place where they're potentially damaging the user experience of those people that are committed to creating content for them, is the end game just being able to serve more adverts and charge advertisers more for putting content in front of the people that are most likely to consume it and part with their money, I suppose. What's also interesting is that they left the dislike button. They just hid the count and actually the the YouTubers or, you know, whoever uploaded the video, the author, they can still see how many dislikes they've received. So they do get that kind of feedback loop of you know, what's working and what's not. So they can still make informed decisions about the next videos that they post. But I guess the difference between like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok and YouTube, so I'm packaging all of those into kind of one bucket and then YouTube into another. I still feel that, you know, YouTube is a place where I kind of look at the recommendations that are there. So I, I can't, I'd like to have that um, very transparent way of seeing at a glance whether I should be watching this video or not. I think in one of the comments that I read, I don't remember which video it was in, but there was a comment about a guy that said that there was a YouTube video that nearly killed him, which again, clickbaity, but he basically went on to say that um, he watched a YouTube video where he, uh, it was about tying a knot. And then I think he was like jumping from somewhere. I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, he nearly died because the knot was, was wrong. And then he went back into that video and he saw that there were a load of dislikes and a lot of negative comments about the video. So now when, you know, when you don't have that dislike and everything, maybe people will start watching the videos and do things again that are not, that are detrimental to the health. I mean, I mean, I know I'm going off into this kind of really weird area, but there are, you, there are videos on YouTube that, you know, that, that can have an impact on your health. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's that it's whether we're, you know, what, what, what is the business focusing on? Well, the business is always going to focus on revenue. So of course they're going to go at it from what makes us more money, but you know, because we're think we're talking about the kind of the user experience, I still think it's a negative thing that they did. And, and it just kind of, you know, makes me think about what other unethical kind of interventions companies like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter are doing that put the ma money making first before our mental health and <laughs> health and well-being. I mean, you know, I'm always going to look at everything. Every time I think of UX and my brain goes that way because it's something that I'm just super interested in right now, but it always goes, goes into, you know, the ethical decisions of, of these companies, of these digital services that 
I, I always question whether, um, you know, I get making revenue. I'm not stupid. You know, it's all about the money. But then, you know, how far do you go in, in, in those ethics? And, and, you know, with this dislike button, you can th you can look at it from both sides because it might you might say, well, actually, ethically, it's better to get rid of the dislike button because for the mental health and well-being of the authors of the videos, it's better for, for them to know that people can't see the dislikes and then they can make an informed decision on whether they want to see the dislikes or not. So from that angle, you might say, well, actually, it's good because it is good for their health. You know, on the flip side of that, me as a person, as, as the audience, you know, I go in and I don't know whether this video is something that I should be looking at or shouldn't. You know, there's videos where people you know, do things that shouldn't, that people, other people shouldn't be looking at, like, you know, being mean to animals or, you know, those kind of things. So, you know, if you had that dislike engine still, you know, you had that dislike option still, enough dislikes could probably allow people to see that this is not a video that they should be watching. So I think it's, it really depends, even from an, an ethics uh, perspective, you've got the but kind of two sides of that story. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the bottom line, perhaps. When we're talking about this as a designer, is it your responsibility to always fight for the right of the user or consider the needs of the business, the business that pays your wages. And I don't think there's an answer that covers everybody there. I think if you're working for a company that makes a decision that you believe is ethically wrong, as a designer, you, there are a few options for you. You can, you can raise it and try and argue your points. You could use product methods to try and convince your uh, leadership team. You could try and explain how this could long-term detrimentally affect the bottom line of the company. But another option is just to leave that company. If you're working for a place like YouTube or Facebook and they make enough decisions that you disagree with, it's a big organization to try and change the approach and the ethics of. That may force us in a direction where we have very polarized services run by very polarized teams that have different ethical standards. I mean, if the YouTubes of the world start making business decisions that improve bottom line over user experience and they get taken on by a company that's that, whose approach is purely based on user experience, it'd be interesting to see who wins out. Going back to your question about whether it's, um, you know, uh, the designer that should be there as the kind of the custodian of the user, I absolutely think they should, because very often they're the only ones that will really stand up for the user and have the, the user's best needs at heart. You know, frankly, a lot of people in the company will be looking at the revenue and the ROIs and everything. So it might sometimes be the, that the UXs and the designers are the only people that are there to kind of say no to something. And I agree with you that, you know, if you think that the company you're working for is not, you know, doesn't doesn't live with your values and is not eth as ethical as you want, you have the opportunity to leave and go to somewhere that's more ethical and does have the user's best needs at heart. But I think what we actually need is for people, for strong UXs to stay in these company and be the voice of the customer and be there. And, and you know, and I know that it sometimes will be a, a lost battle, but I think the more you speak up and try in, in different ways to get people to, to change their 
the ways of thinking and and focus on the user i think that's that's that would be great you know in in the whole scheme of things we're looking at digital services that don't have a lot of policies in place and don't have those ethical interventions so it's up to it's up to the you know the the company employees to stand up and 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 say what they think and hopefully future proof the product so that you know 10 years down the line you know little snippets of information don't start coming out like in some of the bigger <laughs> digital services to date where you know we've been you know we've been finding out about the unethical situations that have gone on in these companies and the outcomes for the users and what's you know what's been happening in the background that you know could have been cut early on if there were people that stood up for the users and you know and diverse teams that could have an outlook and a different way of thinking and bring together you know all of the you know the ethics and and the user experience and all of that together so i think it's just you know whether you're up for it and 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 want to fight I think that's a good place to leave it. It's an interesting subject. And if you have opinions on it and your podcast platform supports it, leave a comment or head on over to YouTube and comment on the video there. You could even dislike it if you want. It won't do anything, but you could. You can find us on Instagram at design.wakeup and on Twitter at designwakeup. We also have a website, designwakeup.com, where you can see some of the blogs and articles that we've been posting. And also, if you're on LinkedIn, We've got a LinkedIn page. I don't know what you do with it, but head on over and like follow it or something. I don't know if you can. Yeah, you can follow it. <laughs> I should know. We've also got a LinkedIn page. Go and follow it. Hey, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in two weeks when hopefully Marco will be back. Bye. See you later. <laughs>